right, with that, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible tonight, uh, you can uh, pull one out of the pew right in front of you. John chapter 21, and while we're turning there, um, man, y'all, this is it. Uh, I saw a couple new faces in the room tonight, so I'm going to just take two minutes and, and talk about this. Uh, some friends of mine asked me, 22 months ago, if I'd be willing to lead a Bible study uh, whenever COVID had shut all the churches down, um, if we could just do a small group gathered together. And uh, I was like, yeah, we can do that. I guess I'll just go through the book of John. Um, I just sort of arbitrarily picked the book of John. Uh, it's a pretty legit gospel. It's one of the only four that we have. So I thought it was a good idea. And then um, I got hired here. We brought that little group of people into Door of Hope. And it's been 22 months that we've been in the book of John. It's wild. 22 months, verse by verse, slowly working through it. And tonight, we are going to finish it. This is the last section of the Gospel of John that we're going to be covering. And I just am sort of in shock. I can't believe it. So here we are, John 21. Why don't you uh, cast an eye onto verse 15, and I'm going to read to, uh, to the end of the chapter. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, then tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. And now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And we, when he had spoken this, he said to him, now follow me. And now Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned on Jesus' bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is it who's going to betray you? And so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And therefore this saying went out among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that he would not die, but only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, and if they had all been written one after another, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Bow your heads with me uh, as we as we are, uh, are going to break this section down. Jesus, thank you, for your, thank you for yourself. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for being wise. Thank you for being good and kind and merciful. And thank you for giving us, your people, a, a Bible, that we have this, that we have so much access to it. Lord, thank you for communicating to us and a way that we can so easily understand, Lord. And we pray for, we pray blessing over the hands and the, and the feet and the minds of those who are busy at work translating the Bible into other languages and getting it into other parts of, of the world that it may not yet have made it to. 
So Lord, as we're here tonight and we have our Bibles and we're here in this building, thank you for all of these blessings. Thank you for the, for the hands and the feet that make this function. Thank you for the talents that you have bestowed upon Sophie and upon the, 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 the crew um, that volunteers here. Thank you for the diligence. Thank you for Chelsea and all of the, all of the, the, the gear maintenance that she does. So much here flows effortlessly, ostensibly, but really it's, it's Chelsea who's behind the scenes making everything everything go forward. Thank you for coffee team. Thank you for uh, the teardown and the setup crew and just all of the people that make this able to, uh, to happen again and again and again every Sunday that we may come here and listen to your word in this setting. Thank you that we're safe and that we can do this without fear of, uh, fear of persecution. So Lord, we're here. Your people are listening. I pray that my, that my voice would be set aside and that uh, I would say only what it is that is in your word, not my preference, not my opinion, but what it is that you have shared with us in your written word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, before I, I get into the text itself, I want to talk about something to set ourselves up for the text. Um, and to do that, I actually have this slide. This, uh, some of you may recognize this. It's a, it's a new photo that was taken um, by the latest and the greatest telescope. The ja- I think it's the James Webb the James Webb tel- Telescope, yeah, James Webb. Uh, it's, um, it's the new and improved version of the Hubble. And this photo is titled SMACS0723. I don't know what that means. It doesn't matter. But here we are. This is a photo that it has taken. And what's interesting about this photo is that it was, it's a photograph of stars and galaxies that are 4.6 billion light years away, 4.6 billion light years from Earth. And, you know, I, I saw this photo. I have, I have coffee every once in a while with a, a friend of mine who's an old retired preacher from Montana, and he told me about this. And I checked it out, and I, and I, I realized that I hadn't, I hadn't thought about a light year in probably since high school. And I knew it was a long distance, but I looked it up. And I want to help, I want to try to help us understand this picture, um, but I'm probably only going to make things worse. So hold your breath and let's dive into this. A light year is the distance that light travels in one year, which scientifically is measured at 364.4 days, and that comes out to a total of 8,766 hours. So the distance that light travels in 8,766 hours is... Deep breath, 5,878,625,370,000 miles. It's in one year. Light travels 5.9 trillion miles in one year. And this photograph is taken from 4.6 billion light years away. So this is far enough away. If I don't know what it is. Some of y'all could help me with this. But 4.6 billion times 5.9 trillion miles away and that's what's out there that's what God made that's what God did and I love that that number is not comprehensible I that is beyond us there is no one that actually understands that and I'm not even fully convinced that scientists are serious like at some point you just have to be making it up you know I just I just don't understand it they say you know, and this is where I might have some qualms with them, but they say that the, the red, the red blurry long lines, there's some in the upper right-hand corner, there's some here on the bottom, um, that those are 
stars or galaxies that are 13 billion years old. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that this is beyond comprehension. This is amazing. And our culture takes, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave, I'd like to, Brian, just leave this picture up while I'm, while I'm preaching, because what, 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 this, what this testifies to me, what this communicates to me is that our God is huge. You're talking about numbers that the human mind cannot understand, 4.6 billion light years away. Nobody knows what that is. And, and our, our culture likes to say, man, what a waste of space. If we're the, if we're the only if we're the only intelligent life form in the entire cosmos or in the universe, what a waste of space. That just seems like such a, such a drag. That seems like such a bummer, doesn't it? And, and I get that sentiment. Uh, I believe that we are the only intelligent life form, not because of my own, uh, my own education or anything. It's not because I'm smart. I cheated to get through high school. But it's because God's word uh, is pretty much how I base everything. And he said that he created us. And so what I, what, I, what I take from photos like this, from these, these numbers that don't make sense, and it's wild if you actually look at how, whenever you look at the tininess of science, you look at the atom and quarks and protons and neutrons and how that doesn't even make sense, but it's the building block for everything. It just, I mean, scientists don't even know how, how that works. And whenever I hear about these things or see pictures like this, what I think is as big as this is and as incomprehensible and inexhaustible as this is, God is bigger. The God of the universe who loves you and thinks about you and knows how many hairs are on your head, he's, he's got that. He made that. He's keeping it. The Bible tells us that all things are made through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus, and in him all things hold together. This, this outer space that no one has seen up until now, I guess, you know, we have pictures of it, that's been there since the beginning of time, and none of us have ever known, but God in his glory and in his sovereignty made it. He's bigger than we can imagine. And as big as this is, that's how big his love is, that's how big his grace is, that's how big his mercy is, and we have a hard time as human beings thinking about the quantity of God because he's beyond computing. But when you see a picture like this, it at least helps me go, okay, as, as big and unfathomable as that is, that's how big our God is. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die. That's a big love. That's a big grace. And I want to remember that as we, as we go into this text, because this text tonight does, does share with us some hard truths. There's difficulty in this text. The, kind, the things that are in this text are the kind of things that may, at some point, maybe not always, but at some point, cause us to gnash our teeth, cause us to throw our fists up into the heavens and say, why, how could you? Are you paying attention? Do you have any idea what's going on in my life? Look at that picture. He does know what's going on in your life. He has not forgotten. He is, he is not neglectful. He's been, he's been making that function since he created it, however long ago that was, and we don't even know that it's out there. 4.6 billion light years away. He's, he's got us. He's got you. He loves you. 4.6 billion is a, is, is, a, is a speck of the amount of love and the, and, and, how, and the amount of mercy and grace that he has because the Bible says that he is love. 4.6 billion, he made that. He's bigger than that. And that love is directed towards you, and that's what we learn in Scripture, and that's what we need to remember as we consider what we're looking at tonight. So that's just sort of, that's just sort of, sort of for fun. This is how big God is. And so verse 15, you know, verse 15, I, I, love, I love storytelling. I, I think I actually consider storytelling an art form. And before I was ever, before I was ever a preacher, I actually was, uh, I did work with a, 
a local organization, <laughs> ironically, they, they go by the name Seven Deadly Sins, <laughs> and they, they, they tasked me with telling stories. They would, they would usually pay me with bottles of wine or like little gift baskets or something. They said that they were going to pay me money, and they never did. But they would, they would set some of us up. They would task a group of us to go to, from theater to theater around town, and we would tell stories just for the sake of telling stories. There is some moral at the end, some feel-good story or something like that, a lesson learned or something like this, but it was really just for the sake of telling stories. It was just a, sto- it was a storytelling circuit, and I loved it. I loved telling stories. I got, a little bit of, I got a little bit of flack for being the only Christian on the team, and I think it's actually why they, they ditched me. They never emailed me back after a while, and I think it's because I was a Christian, and I told them about it. But as a storyteller and as someone who loves stories, this last section, verses 15 to 25, the verses that we just read, as a storyteller, it seems out of place. It seems like the story up until this point, the arch that we've been on throughout the Gospel of John, really did end well in verse 14. And there's a part of me that wishes like, ah, I wish that that was it. I wish that that was the end. I wish that that was the period. We could close the book, move on to Acts, and that was it. But... Here it is, God's sovereign word that has got no mistakes, no errors, no contradictions, has verse 15 through 25, um, and it feels like an interruption, if you're honest, because if you consider the trajectory up until this point, I mean, even just, I mean, not even the whole, the whole gospel, just starting in chapter 13, we see Jesus, it's the beginning of his passion, it's the beginning of this, of this last ditch road to the cross, he's with his disciples in the upper room and it says in chapter 13 before the feast of the Passover Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and then the narrative the narrative goes on from there to describe Jesus washing the disciples feet but it begins with him knowing that his hour had come knowing that he was going to depart from this world very easy thing to say Very easy thing to write, but it's a profound truth. We talked about this when we were in John 13, that Jesus knew what, he knew what that meant. He wasn't just going to leave. He wasn't just going to ascend into heaven and and depart out of the world. He was going to go to the cross. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him explicitly and publicly and with expletives and with oaths. I do, not, I do not know that man. I have no affiliation with him. He knew the scourging was going to take place. He knew that the mock trials were going to take place. He knew that he was going to be mutilated beyond human recognition. He was going to be beaten to a pulp. His back lacerated open, and then he was going to be crucified on a cross. And there on the cross, taking the punishment of the sins of the world, that the Father was going to have to somehow, in some way that is beyond us, some way that is very mysterious, there was a forsaking. The Father turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew all of that was going to happen, and he washes the disciples' feet. Throughout the whole rest of the narrative, we see love, we see compassion, we see patience. He goes to the cross, he dies, and he rises again, just like he said he would. And he finds his closest believers in chapter 20 hiding, uncertain, scared, confused, Some of them said he is risen. Some of them said, there's no way that that's actually true. You're lying. I'm confused. But I do know that if we affiliate with Jesus publicly right now, we're going to be killed. And so they were hiding for fear behind locked doors. And that's where Jesus finds them. After everything that he did for them, after everything that he does for us, even to this day, we hide in fear to be associated with him. And these guys were hiding from a much more legitimate fear than we even have today. But I love this, that Jesus shows up, John 20, verse 19 and following, he shows up, 
They're hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jewish authorities. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be to you. There's no condemnation. There's no criticism. There's, there's no coldness. He's not calloused. He says, peace be to you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. And Luke shows it, tells us that, they, that he showed them his feet as well. He's reassuring them, it's actually me. I've risen from the dead. He's not a phantom. He's not a premonition. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He is in no way lesser than when he went to the cross. He is resurrected from the dead and now he is in his glorified state and yet he bears the scars that he got paying for our sins. And he is not mean. He is not rude. He says to them, peace be with you. He is always kind, showing them his hands and his feet. He proves to them that his prophecies and his promises have come true and have come to fulfillment. Everything that he has said about himself is true. Every promise that he has made is true. Death is defeated. He is overqualified for death. And now that resurrection life he has given them and he offers to us anew every day. Every day. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul said in Acts chapter 16. It's free. There it is. That life, that resurrection life, that perfect life that Jesus lived that is beyond death, that is overqualified for death, he offers to us. And his resurrection proved it. The scars on his hands proved it. And instead of berating them or beating them, he reassures them. He shows them his hands and his feet. He has compassion on them. And in his kindness, he reassures and reaffirms, and then he commissions them. He says, you go and do. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Go. Go do the work. All of the work that Jesus has been doing in Palestine, all of the preaching of the gospel, all of the preaching of the kingdom to come, the repentance of sins, and life only available in Jesus Christ, eternal life, abundant life. Go and do that work. On the far end of, of verbally abusing them, he gives them a commission, he gives them a job, and he says, peace be with you along the way. You see these scars? I did this for you. Now go. And they still didn't quite get it. Last week we considered in the opening verses of chapter 21 that Peter seems, Peter and six other disciples seem to go, you know what, I, I know he's risen from the dead, but I still just want to have a backup plan. I don't know if this fisher of men thing is really going to pan out. I mean, I did blow it pretty hard. And, G and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the text indicates that doesn't mean he was going for a leisurely task. He wasn't going to go fish as a hobby. He was going back to his old life. When Jesus predicted that his disciples would forsake him and scatter, he said, you will scatter each to your own. That's your own life, your own business, your old former ways of life. And that's what Peter was most likely doing. He wasn't just going to go for an afternoon stroll on the water. He was going to revert back to his old ways. And his nets came up empty because the Lord was directing him. I, I, know, I know you blew it, Peter. I know you've had a hard go. But I told you you're going to be a fisher of men, and you're going to be. And I love that. I love that his nets were empty. They did not succeed that day in their fishing expedition because Jesus was kindly correcting them away from this lifestyle into the life that Jesus had called them to. And then just to prove it, he fills their nets up. 153 fish. Jesus says, hey, you guys got any fish? You don't. Throw your net on the other side. And they had 153 fish, a number so big that John, the author of this gospel, thought it noteworthy to put in there that the nets did not even break. 153 large fish, the Greek says. Jesus is saying to them, stop running away. I will not let you be successful at it. Come and do what I tell you to do, and there's blessing. There's rich blessing. 
And that rich blessing may or may not be right here and right now in our lives. In that moment, they caught 153 fish. That's, that is money. But now Jesus is going to turn around as we see in this text, and he's going he's to direct Peter into a life that will be blessed, but also is going to be full of hardship. And the question is, do we trust? Do we love? Do we know Jesus? Do we believe in him fully? The God who holds that up by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, do we believe in him? Do we trust him? And the story ends with them on that, on that, on that beach at the Sea of Galilee having breakfast. Remember we talked about this. Peter, Peter brings the net up. Jesus invites them to have breakfast. He's already got a charcoal fire and fish on the fire. Jesus has everything that they're already looking for. And then he begins to do, not only has he been kind and mercy and gracious up until this point, but he starts to act, he starts to work uh, some clinical psychology on Peter. He starts to do some brain work. He starts to do some, some counsel. He starts to do some therapy on Peter. And John writes that there is a charcoal fire there. We talked about this last week. Why? Well, because the last time that Peter was around a charcoal fire was when he denied Jesus publicly, explicitly, with expletives and with an oath. And how many times, I mean, that was, he ended that day in, in, in bitter weeping. We're told in other Gospels that as soon as he had denied Jesus for the third time, Jesus turned across the courtyard and locked eyes with him. I mean, imagine what that would do to you. And every time that Peter sees a charcoal fire, he's going to remember that night. He's going to remember that denial. And Jesus is rewiring that part of his brain. Every time Peter sees a charcoal fire from here on out, he's not going to think of his failure. He's going to think of his reinstatement. He's going to think of the grace that Jesus beat into his head. Jesus is beating grace, grace, grace into Peter's head. He's ministering to him. He's offering him breakfast. He's going to reinstate him around a charcoal fire. That detail is not to be missed. He cares for us. And he can undo everything that we've done. The Bible says that he will restore or renew the years that the locusts have eaten. If you're like me and you've thrown years of your life away because of <laughs> what I like to call the party, right? You can define that however you want. You've thrown your life away pursuing your own autonomy you're not beyond saving and you're not beyond use. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Here's a charcoal fire. Here's a new start. Here's a new beginning. But then we're interrupted. This beautiful scene, this taste of what heaven is going to be like by the sea, having breakfast or brunch, however you like to think of it, with Jesus and the homies for all of eternity. That's a taste of heaven. But, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, it's like, ah, oh, I really don't want this breakfast to end. I really don't want this moment to end. Sitting on, the, sitting on the seashore with Jesus, that sounds awesome. But this breakfast came to an end, and it's an indication here. Listen, everything here will come to an end. Every breakfast, every dream, every endeavor, every relationship, whether it be parent, child, husband, wife, father, mother, aunts, uncle, just that, that bro-ship that you got like me and Sam Tucker have, it's all coming to an end. And Sam Tucker and I have a serious bro-ship. You call it a bromance. That's the word, right? A bromance? Yeah. Amen? It comes to an end. Everything on this side of eternity comes to an end. This breakfast, as sweet and beautiful as it was, this, this, this communion with Jesus is not yet consummate. And it came to an end. Breakfast was over. And Peter had to get to work. There was work to do. The breakfast was finished. It interrupted the sweet time that they had because we're not there yet. We're still in the age of decay. We're still in the age of trial and of 
trouble and of tribulation. There's work to do. Jesus did raise from the dead, but that doesn't mean that rest and relaxation in this age is going to be immediate. There is a call to get to work. There is a call to do something. And the call is very kind. The call is very gracious, but the call is also very hard simultaneously. Jesus taught this in Luke's gospel. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father or his wife and children or brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's some serious, that's some serious words right there. And this is one of those things, one of those things that Jesus says that if he's not king of the universe, if he doesn't sustain that, then he doesn't have the right to say this. And we should throw our Bibles away. But if he is king of the universe, and he is, then we should pay attention. Because we don't like this, but we need to pay attention to it. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, if he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Skipping down a few verses. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter another who has 20,000? So then none of you can be my disciple if he does not give up all of his own possessions. And that sort of teaching, does, does, I mean, you need to dive into that. What is Jesus saying and what is he not saying? He's not saying to actually literally actively hate your family. It's the same Jesus who calls us to love our enemies and to turn our, the cheek when someone strikes us, to pray for those who persecute us, and to be kind to those who malign us. So he's not saying to actively hate here, but what he is calling into question is our allegiance and the love that we have. And we see this very, very clearly. I was, as I was thinking about this, this is, I understand this is silly, and I'm going to do it anyways. There's this old movie. It's not really old. It's like 10 years old. But there's this old movie called The Town with Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner. I don't like Ben Affleck. But Ben, but ben Affleck's character, they're bank robbers. And so they're, they're rough boys. You know, they're these, rough, they're these rough Boston types. They're ball brawlers. They're drug dealers. They rob banks. And Ben Affleck's character has got uh, some squabble with a couple of dudes in the neighborhood. And I love this. He comes into Jeremy Renner's house. Jeremy Renner's character is watching television, and Ben Affleck says, I need your help. You can't ask me about it, and I can never tell you about it, but we're going to hurt some people. And Jeremy Renner sits there and goes, oh, whose car are we going to take? And I love that. <laughs> I love that. There's this, like, you know, the street thug in me still is like, yeah, let's do some damage. I want to hurt some people. I do. I'm a, I have a violent tendency, and I want to help, help a dude out. Like, there's things that I want to do. But if my family member or somebody that I love comes to me and says, somebody has hurt me, somebody has wronged me, and I want us to get some street justice for it, I have to say no. I have to, in that moment, I have to hate my brother. I have to hate my friend. I have to choose to not engage with this, this bloodlust. I cannot do it. I cannot do this quick get-rich scheme if it's going to be illegal. I, can't, I cannot go with you down that path. I cannot follow you. I have to follow Jesus. And following Jesus, as we're going to see, may mean that we go broke. It may mean that we get hurt. It may mean that we lose friends. It may mean that we lose family members. Friend, come join us in this. The, the, the this Bible talks about this. Come join us in blood guilt. Come join us in dishonesty. It'll be quick, it'll be easy, it'll only have to, one job, we'll just do it one time, and we'll never have to work again. Friends, we have to say no. We have to say no to the flesh, we have to say no to friends and family, even our own siblings, our own children. If they are leading us away from Jesus, we have to choose allegiance to Jesus. This is a call to, where's your allegiance lie? And it might get put to the test really, really severely. I've shared this with you before, I've lost friends over 
over Jesus because I follow him. And my friends aren't asking me to come hurt somebody without telling me about the details. They just want to recreationally do cocaine and go to strip clubs. I'm like, I'm not gonna, I can't go to those places. And they're like, well, that's where we're going. I'm like, well, then, you know, call me when you get done, but I can't go. Well, screw you, you prude. Okay, I mean, that's, that's what happens. It's minor right now in this culture, this day and age, it's not that severe. But what we're going to see for Peter is that the allegiance, the test of the allegiance is high. This is a call. Who do you really believe? Who do you really trust? Is it Jesus or is it the world? And Jesus says, listen, count the cost. Luke 14, 26 and following, count the cost. If you're going to go to war with 20,000 people, make sure that you can do it. If you're going to follow Jesus, make sure that you know what you're getting into. Because the cost is great. And it may not lead to our death. It may, not, it may not actually get us killed. But Timothy writes, or Paul writes to Timothy. See if I got this in the right place. Excuse me, 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul writes to Timothy, You've heard of my sufferings at all these different cities. And you can expect them yourself. And know, and know this for sure, that anyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. Everyone is going to face persecution if you want to live a godly life. There's going to be persecution in following Jesus. But Jesus is not calling us to actually hate our family. I mean, Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 5 that anyone who doesn't provide for his family is worse for an unbeliever. We're called to love our family, but when it comes to loving our family, if allegiance to our family, we have to put our Bibles away and hide from what we're doing because God, we don't want God to see it, then there's a problem there. And that's a simple truth, but that's a hard truth. And how many of us fail at that? How many of us, it's so easy to just go with the flow. It's so easy to turn off your conviction. It's so easy to just tell the Holy Spirit to shut up and go with the flow. But it's not easy to do that for very long. And if you are born again, if you are a follower of Jesus, he will, he will, he will bother your conscience. He will turn you around and you will follow the Lord again. And it's pictures like this that help me remember that because God loves you without exhaustion. He's inexhaustible. He's incomprehensible. And I want to follow him. No matter how hard it is in this life. And how hard it is going to be in this life, we're going to read right now. So whenever they had finished breakfast, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. And a second time, Simon, do you love me? You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was now grieved because this was the third time the Lord had asked. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Notice in verse 15 that Jesus refers to Peter as Simon, son of John. That may not mean much to you, but if you go back in the Gospels and look, Jesus changed Peter's name from Shimon to Cephas, from Simon, son of John, to Peter, the rock. Whenever there's a name change, it's because Peter was changed by Jesus. Jesus changed who Peter was, and he renamed him, and now he refers to him by his old name, which is it's a low-key diss, because Peter's been acting like Simon. Peter's been acting like before he met Jesus. And so Jesus refers to him by his, own, by his old name, and he says to him, do you love me? And I love this. He doesn't ask, are you wise? Are you educated? Are you experienced? Uh, are you cultured and eloquent and loquacious? But 
Do you love me? And this is the question. This is the question of conclusion. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you love him? That is the ultimate question. That, that, that is the question. Do you love Jesus? We're going to talk about this more in depth in a few verses. But notice that. The question is not, are you qualified? Are you educated? Are you winsome? Are you handsome? Can you speak well? Do you love me, Peter? Because after that, anything's possible. He says, do you love me more than these? And the commentators are at a little bit of a disagreement here, as they often are. Uh, does Jesus mean when he says, do you love me more than these? Does, is he saying, Peter, do you love me more than these men? As much as you love them, do you love me more? Or as your business, do you love me more than these? These, these tools, the, this boat, these nets, the business that you just went back to. Do you love me more than your security? Do you love me more than your financial income? Do you love me more than this? Or do you love me more than these men love me? As much as these men have love for me, do you have more? Because this is the very same Peter who said, who kind of put himself up on a pedestal and said, though everyone may, deceive, may, 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 be, may turn away from you, though everyone may betray you, I will never betray you. I will never turn my back on you. I will die for you. Peter said that. Which means... These guys may fail, but I'm more dedicated. I'm more serious. I love you more. I'm stronger. I'm bigger. I'm badder. I'm better. I will not fail no matter what comes, even death. And we saw what happened, and that's what made Peter's fall so much greater. But he does love the Lord. I mean, he's the only one who, we looked at this last week, when Jesus showed up on the shore, Peter jumped out of the boat. He was so anxious to get to the feet of Jesus, he jumped out of the boat and made the rest of the guys carry the 153 fish back to shore. <laughs> Peter loves, he loves the Lord. He confidently asserted himself as the best, and he failed. And he says to Jesus, his response is, yes, you know that I love you. I lo it's, it's telling, he, he, he dropped the more than these. Jesus said, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, you know I love you. He drops them more. He's not comparing himself to other people anymore. He knows that he's defective. He knows that he's weak. He knows that he has failed. And Jesus is still doing his work of clinical psychology. He's still working on Peter's limbic brain. I mean, a, 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 an experience like Peter's betrayal, there's no telling what the ramifications of that might be over the long run. There's no telling the self-hate. There's no telling the shame. There's no telling the guilt that one might carry after you do something like that. Peter shows up on the shore, there's a charcoal fire. The setting is the same, but the experience is different. And now three times in a row, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's replacing that old experience with a new one. He's changing Peter's mind, and he's convincing Peter that he is loved and that there is grace, and he's convincing Peter that Peter actually does love him. And I shared with you last week my own experience with some of that. And I wonder, I can't pretend to know, but I wonder if there's some of you here tonight that need to, that need to hear that. The need to hear that whatever, however you've blown it, whatever tragedy or trauma that there's been, do you believe that Jesus is one who has the balm or the salve for that? Same circumstance. Maybe it's a father. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a, something that you did. Maybe you, maybe, you, maybe you went to a friend and said, hey, I can't tell you about it, and you can't ask me any questions, but we need to hurt some people. And then you went and did it. And maybe that lives with you. Whatever it is, there's grace for you. There's no depth of sin that you can go that God's grace doesn't reach in and pull you out. Just say, yes, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And Jesus is like, that's my boy. That's my girl. You're his type. 
He's doing this with Peter experientially now. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He gives him a job. He gives him something to do. He knows that Peter's love is defective. He knows that it's weak. Even Peter does. Peter doesn't say, I love you more than these. He doesn't say that anymore. But in doing so, Jesus is reminding Peter of just how great his sin was, but only to forgive him of it, only to show him this is how bad it was, but this is how great my mercy is. 4.6 billion miles away, his mercy is bigger. Five trillion miles a year, light travels, God's grace is bigger, his love is bigger, his mercy is bigger. Do you believe that? Peter's experiencing it right here. As, as bad as your sin was, Peter, I'm only bringing it up because you're forgiven, and in fact, here's a job. I have something for you to do. I told you I was going to make you a fisher of men, and I'm sticking to my word. He tells, he tells Peter to feed his sheep. Peter is now publicly reinstated. Feed my sheep. Care for the weak. Care for the destitute. Preach the gospel. Be of use to those who are hurting. Peter, you know what it's like to hurt. Now go tell people how much love you have received. Go tell people how loving I am. And I love this. The third time around, Peter's grieved because it's the third time that Jesus has asked him if he loves him, and some commentators, I'm going to leave the, write this down, and you can go search this out if you want to, but there's, there's three Greek words for love, at least. There's uh, agape, there's phileo, and uh, eros, and eros is, is sexual intimate love. Phileo is like brotherly love. It's where city of Philadelphia, city of brotherly love gets their name, and then there's agape love, and agape love, or agapao, means deep spiritual, selfless love, the kind of love that God has for us where he just gives and gives and gives and gives. Um, and there's some question with the commentators which, which word is being used here. Um, I'm going to leave that just right there. If you guys want to dive into that Greek study, go ahead. Um, it's there. Uh, that's maybe why Peter was grieved, but I think Peter was grieved because Jesus is like, but do you love me? But do you love me? But do you really love me? It's like, yeah, I mean, come on, man. Yes, leave me alone. I love you. Stop. What do you know that I don't? A lot. Jesus knows a lot that he doesn't. But Peter says, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And there is the key. Do you love Jesus? Because the, the reason why that's the key, the reason why that's the ultimate question, not are you educated, not are, do you have a PhD or an MDiv, do you preach at a church, do you lead a Bible study, do you love Jesus? And Peter makes two great confessions here. He says, Lord, you know that I love you, which means that Peter is betraying that he believes Jesus is God. You know all things. You know that I love you, believes that he's God, and affirming that he loves him. Peter's affirming that he loves Jesus, and that's important because the devil knows that Jesus is God. The demons know that Jesus is God. We're told in James that the demons are actually witty enough and clever enough and smart enough to not only know that Jesus is God, but they're actually afraid of him. They shudder when they see him. Read the New Testament. Whenever they come in contact with Jesus, they freak out. They're terrified of him because they're not in with him. Peter's confession here, you are Lord, you know all things, that's, that's half the battle. The other, the big part is, do you love him? I can't answer that question for you. This is, this is what I had to figure out. This is where I went. I grew up in the church. I knew the Bible's answers. I knew the pop, quiz, the pop quiz questions. I did pretty good in Christian school, but I had no love for the resurrected Lord. He was not real to me. I knew the answers. I knew how many books were in the Bible. I knew how many, how many books were in each of the, the New and the Old Testament, but I did not love the resurrected Jesus. And it, it took me going to jail well, on my way going to jail and having all my charges wiped clean before I actually understood what the gospel is. 
God's grace, God's mercy. As big as outer space is, his mercy is greater. His, his love is greater. And that is what Jesus is pouring onto Peter right here and right now. This should cause us to trust and to love Jesus. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it's, it's good that Peter's making this confession that I love you because it's the only thing that's going to last for what's coming for Peter. The only motivation that's going to endure is love because if Peter's doing it for the money, if Peter's doing it for the social clout or for the reputation, it's not going to be worth it. And I think about this. I think about this as, as a pastor. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? Is it because people come and listen and I have a microphone and that's cool? It's like power. It's like people ask me questions afterwards and I somehow feel validated. I mean, heck, I'm an orphan. I don't know who my real dad is. My, my biological mom I have no relationship with. And so I'm looking, for, I'm looking for attaboys. I'm looking for, hey, good job. I'm looking for people to think that I'm important because my own parents abandoned me. Is that what this is? Because that will fade, that will go away, and I shouldn't be here. But these are the kinds of questions, honestly, that preachers should be asking themselves. Why are you here? Is it because you love the Lord, or is it because you want a pat on the back? Why is Peter going to go do the very thing that the Lord told him to do? Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I send you. Well, why should I go? You know all things. You know that I love you, and I want to do what pleases you, because it's going to cost Peter a lot. Verse 18, truly, truly, that is amen, amen. That means you can bet your bottom dollar as sure as sure as Jesus is king of the universe, so this is going to happen, Peter. This is a guarantee stamped in Jesus' blood. This is going to happen. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. I am so thankful for verse 19 because without it, I don't know what we would make of verse 18. People would be all over the board with what that means. This he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then when he had said this, you're going to die. You used to have autonomy. You used to go where you wanted. You used to do whatever you wished, when you wished, how you wished, with who you wished. But I'm telling you what, you're going to be detained. You're going to be chained. You're going to be led away to where you don't want to go. And your arms are going to be stretched out. And we know from history that Peter was crucified upside down under Roman authority by the authority of Nero. He was killed for being a Christian. He was killed for being a Jesus follower. And as we've already looked at, crucifixion was a brutal way to die. And history records that Peter actually requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to die the exact same way that Jesus did. So they crucified him upside down. And now that you know that you're going to die, verse 19, follow me. This isn't going to work out for you, Peter. You're not going to have YouTube followers. You're not, going to be, you're not going to be an internet sensation. You're not going to be an influencer. You're not going to write, well, he did write books, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be famous. You're not going to be well-known. This is not going to be good for your resume. This is not going to be good for your career. This is not going to be a wise investment if you're looking to get rich now because I'm telling you, you're going to die, and it's going to be brutal. He said this signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. I mean, talk about company benefits, you know. When I worked for the company, I at least got to take the company car around town a little bit. You know, but Jesus promises that you will be detained, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be led to a place of execution, and you'll be killed. And this is why the call is gracious, and it's also very hard. This love, this you know all things, you know that I love you, this love brings responsibility. 
It brings sacrifice, and it may even cause our death. Friends, are you, do you think about that? I mean, I, I've got a few friends that are like, well, if you're not going to do coke and come and hang out at the strip club, then, you know, we'd rather not hang out with you because that's what we're going to do. So be a part of us or go away. I have to go away. That's a very mild persecution. That's a very mild thing. We don't want to hang out with you. But Peter's been being promised that he's going to be murdered, that he's going to be a martyr. And then what does Jesus say? He looks him in his eyes and he says, follow me. Do you think about that? Follow me. I mean, this, there's a, the gospel that sells today, the, the churches that have upwards of 20,000 people are churches that tell you that Jesus will take away the wrinkles on your face. You know, if you're, if you're north of 50, he'll take away your gray hair. He'll give you perfect health. He'll give you perfect finances. He may even give you that car. You just have to have enough faith. And if you don't have these things, it's because it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. I sat, <clears throat> and I'll drop his name because he's already dropped his own. I sat in Joel Osteen's church in 2016 just to check it out. I was there. I was in town. I thought, eh, why not? So I waited in line to get into church. And he sat there. Well, I sat there while he actually said from the pulpit that ladies, he he picked on ladies for whatever reason. Ladies, if you have enough faith in Jesus, then you will start to chill. You won't be stressed about life as much and that the wrinkles on your face will go away. You'll look 10 years younger. He actually said that from the pulpit. No wonder he's got 16,000 people in an old basketball stadium paying for parking. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if they pay for parking. They do a shuttle. This, you can't do parking for 16,000 people. But do we think about this? Do we think about this? Jesus looks Peter right in the face. He says, you're going to die, now follow me. 2 Timothy 3.12, that's where it is. Everyone who wishes to live a godly life will be persecuted. Do we think about this? Do we consider that this is what Jesus has called us to do? It may not happen here, but we will be persecuted to some extent. He says that this is the death by which he will glorify God. You know, I, I, I... I, and I, I, I feel this way. I think this. I think, you know, God is doing his job if the water pipes in the house don't burst, my wife doesn't get in a car accident, I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking, I'm already low-key thinking, like, I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll trust God if our baby is born happy and healthy. We're having baby at home, so there's like, there's, there's no, oh, shoot, handle to grab onto. You know, we're going to have to drive to the hospital. And my thinking is, all right, Lord, this is your job. Make sure that baby's born perfectly healthy. Make sure that Angie's perfectly healthy. Make sure that the pain is only so much. She's not getting an epidural, so come on, hook it up. I think that. I think that my life should be easier because I'm a follower of Jesus. I think that my life should be easier because I'm a preacher. I tell people about Jesus. So I think that my life should be easier. That's low-key, always there. That temptation is always there. I remember when my dad got cancer. Lord, you know, I know. I mean, the cancer is going to go away because, hey, I'm one of yours, right? You're not going to let my dad die. He's a good old boy. And my dad died in my arms six months later. Friends, I don't know why. I'm not going to mess with the God that's holding that sustaining. I'm not going to question him. I trust him. He took my dad. I would have written the story something a little bit more like this. I feel like this story has an interruption in it. If I'd written the story, I would have written it something like, well, my dad would live to be at least 90, and my mom, and that my child would be born and get babysat by them, and they'd go to the zoo or the park or whatever. We're not really into zoos, but they would, like, they would go do grandma, grandbaby stuff, and instead, my child's never going to meet my father. Why? I don't know. 
God thought something better should happen. And so he took my dad at 61. Dude, that's not the story I would have written. But I trust the Lord. Friends, do you trust the Lord? This is really it. Like we're, we're, ending, we're ending John's gospel. And after 22 months of being immersed in it and preaching it, my question at the end is, do you love the Lord and do you trust him? Because the circumstances of your life are out of your control. And it helps me find something that helps. But it helps make it real. It helps make the gospel real. When I see pictures like this and I'm like, man, that God is big. His grace is bigger than that. His love is bigger than that. His wisdom is bigger than that. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He created that. I'm not going to argue with him. He's not my butler. I'm going to bow the knee and say, yes, amen. And if it is going to turn out bad for me in this life, then I want to answer this call that Peter answers right here where Jesus says, follow me. Do you trust him? Do you love him? That's really the question at the end of John. All 21 chapters, all these verses, 22 months later, do you, do you love Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you know him? Because it might turn out real rough for us. You're going to be led where you do not want to go. You're going to be crucified upside down. Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned on his bosom at the, at the, at the supper, that's in chapter 13, and said, Lord, who is it who's going to betray you? And so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? I can only imagine that Peter understood that if I follow Jesus, it's, it's gonna, in this life, it's going to turn out hard. It's going to be rough for me. But what about, my, you know, what about him? <laughs> What's he got to go through? I love Jesus' answer. Shut up and mind your business. That's what Jesus says. Mind your business. If, if, if I want him to stay until I remain, what is that to you? Mind your business. And oh, we do this. We do this, friends. I do this. I think, man, it would have been so much easier to be a pastor in the 70s in Arizona. It would have been so, no one disagrees with you in Arizona in the 70s. No one disagrees with you. I have been, I've been to Texas. In large parts of Texas, man, I mean, they've got their own problems, right? They're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, me and all, all three of my wives. Like, that doesn't really make much sense either, bro. But at least, like, no one's throwing stones at you for carrying a Bible in your back pocket. Portland, my gosh. I mean, it sucks the air out of the room. It's, you're a social pariah here when you're a Christian. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I experience it all the time. We don't want to hang out with you, closed-minded backwater. Where are you from? I'm from Portland. No, that just doesn't make any sense. I would have been so much easier, so much easier to have a Bible in my hands, preaching in the pulpit. Why don't I get to be like that dude who preached in the 70s? Shut up, Ian. It's none of your business. Follow me. I love that. I love that. That's just a good spanking. I mean, that's what that is. If, I, if, it were, if, it, if it's, it's up to me what if I, that if I have him remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow the Lord wherever he takes you. Therefore, this saying went out among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that he would not die, but only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things. This is how we've seen it again and again and again in John's gospel. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is how we know that it's John. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. Friends, do you love Jesus? Do you trust him? That's the question. 
That's what you have to take home. Or do you just believe information about him? Do you look at the Bible and see this long list of data, dates, facts, doctrines, geography on map, this happened at a certain place at a certain time in history, and you just sort of agree with that information? Because I have to warn you, friends, the devil believes the same stuff. The Bible warns us of that. But do you love him? Do you trust him? Have you given him your life? And along with that, and I'll close out with this, if you love him and you trust him, please don't let the circumstances of your life convince you that he is anything but good and kind and gracious. Someone could very easily take the death of a parent, a baby being born sick, a wife going through catastrophic failure in a pregnancy, even dying, and then a guy like me going, all right, never mind. I preached for you. I got up at 3.30 in the morning and did my job and met with people and preached the gospel faithfully, and then you're going to let my wife die? You're going to let my dad die? You're a jerk. I'm out. I'm going to go visit my friends at the strip club with the Coke. Don't let yourself do that, friends. And I know it's kind of funny, and I know that it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of it's edgy when you hear stuff like that, but I know people who have done it. They've looked at their lives and they've gone, well, I thought that my life would be different, so Jesus must just not be paying attention. Guys, look at the picture. He's holding this together. He knows who you are. He has everything in control. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Please don't let the devil convince you that he is malevolent because your life is taking a hit. He looked at Peter and he said, your life is going to take a hit. Now follow me. And love is the only motivation that will endure. Fame, money, prestige, it will not endure because you're probably going to lose all of it if you're following Jesus. But he's worth it. He's good. One last detail, verse 25. And there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. I would love to think that John was speaking literally there that the actual planet Earth would not be able to hold the books that would be written if everything that Jesus did and taught was documented. I lean towards, he probably wasn't being literal, but I also know that if, if Jesus is the God of the universe who holds this at play, then it is true in its own way. God is incomprehensible, he is inexhaustible, and that inexhaustible nature of his, there is no end, there is no depth. All of that is rushing towards you in his son Jesus, proving to you that he loves you, that the price of sin has been paid, and that there is nothing left for you but, but his life. And so whatever he calls you to do here, follow him. Follow him. Do not look to the world for your, for your accolades or for your awards. Follow the God of the universe who gave his son and who is holding the universe up in, in suspension at the same time. Believe in him. Trust him. He's good. Is there a God that made this and sustains it? Yes, there is. What is he like? He's like this. He's good. He's so good. Amen? Amen.